This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. You know, uh, since leaving the military, probably like many of you, I feel increasingly detached from world events. Um, And not just world events, but um, kind of the intimate knowledge of the foreign streets and what's going on in the, the, you know, a third world um, atmospherics. One of the, if not the best way that I've kind of been keeping tabs on stuff and trying to stay smart on all that is uh, with the writing of Holly McKay. Uh, Holly has been on the show before uh, when we talked in depth about the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, last year. Um, And that was uh, such a blast uh, being able to talk to her about that. But I was able to talk to her again this week and um, she has been just on a tear covering so many different issues and um, it was a blast to get her back on. Uh, I, you know, she is seven months pregnant (laughs) and uh, that's its own adventure. And, um, you know, as a result, for one thing, we couldn't go super long, which I can totally appreciate. Um, But man, I don't know anyone else that we could pack that many different subjects into a relatively short interview. Um, Holly's intimate knowledge of so many different conflict zones and recent knowledge um, is just fascinating. There was a a good chunk of this interview I wanted to dedicate, and I think this is the way I'm going to have to do things with Holly going forward, is I really got to pick one subject and dive into it with her. because to try to do wave tops of multiple different subjects is, is uh, not as satisfying, I don't think. But um, I, I, we, she and I had not talked that much about her trip to Iran. That happened now many years ago, I mean, 2017, I think. Um, but, you know, she's one of the few people that's actually taken a trip to Iran and spent three weeks there traveling the country. And that... And I was like, you know, before we go any further, we really should talk about Iran and everything that that entailed. 
and um, I'll link in the show notes to her YouTube video about her trip to Iran, which is a fascinating 11 minutes, about as fascinating 11 minutes as you can spend on YouTube, I would humbly submit. Um, but be, being able to talk to Holly about that uh, was awesome. I should have a better word than awesome, but it, it I, I really appreciate uh, her insight. I also really appreciate, um, I, I think what really is the privilege of being able to talk to her now is being able to ask her opinions on things. I think she makes some great points in this interview about the nature of journalism, uh, what many journalists try to push journalism into and what journalism should be. And I loved her explanation of that and her um, and her thoughts on that. But what I loved is then being able to sit back and go, okay, cool, bitchin', awesome, facts are established, groundwork has been laid. What do you actually think about this? What do you actually think about that based off of your experience? And um, no spoilers, you can listen to the interview, uh, but I loved her answers, thought they were interesting, unpredictable. Um, I'm just a huge fan of her work. So without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Holly McKay's second Profile in Havoc. Welcome back to the show, Holly. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm I, I really feel privileged to have you back now two years in a row because it's like you've done a decade's worth of work since the last time we spoke. And I've got like a list of subjects that we could go into in depth. That's like, honestly, half a page long. I've got like just bullet points of like, well, we could talk about this. We could talk about that. Can we just first start with a 30,000 foot view? What's your op tempo been like? Because just looking at what you've been publishing and putting out and following your writing it's like week in, week out, you are making radical gear shifts going, now I'm in Ukraine, now I'm over here in Saudi Arabia, now I'm in Iran, now I'm back in Afghanistan. Is that right? Or do you kind of dedicate time just to travel, collect information, and then spend a bunch of time parsing it out, writing, and kind of having some downtime? Because it seems like you're on one hell of a treadmill. Yeah, it really varies. Um, I think more these days, because I don't work in the breaking news space, Like when you're in the breaking news space, you sort of you're you're writing from wherever you are and you're um you know having to put stuff out really quickly which is really difficult um i know you know when i was in ukraine last year with the invasion it was sort of like try to be out all day getting information and then you'd be basically up all night transcribing and then trying to write and file and you go to bed at three and then you're up again at five and you know it's it's certainly a lot more chaotic um and even though things like that are important to to get the stories out in a timely manner, it's not my preferred way of doing my work. It's not, I don't always think it's the best reflection of the story or the writing because you are so rushed and so exhausted and you're trying to do a thousand things. So certainly for me, what I much prefer doing is, and, you know, sort of since then when it's not breaking news, I'll go to a particular place and I'll spend several, you know, weeks or however long I need to, to spend there and really spend the time, um, you know, collecting the information, going to where I need to be. And I think in the last year, 
being able to enjoy things a little bit more, the experience than I've had in most of my career where you just constantly did and being able to just go and, and not actually do the writing work while you're there, but just be able to go and have those experiences um, and to sit with people and to um, to not sort of feel so pressured and rushed to kind of get back to your laptop. So, um, yeah, that's generally, you know, my approach now is I'll go and, and focus on just collating the information and what I need and then um, I'll come back and take down time to then sort of put it together and, and to write it um, where I am a little separated from the situation but also um, – not under the sort of gun. So again, yeah. it's if it's not breaking news, I want to take a little bit more time with it. Yeah, there's there's something to be said for not necessarily writing the first draft of history, and maybe the second or third drafts of history are a little bit more valuable and have been thought through a little bit more, right? Yeah, and then you have that chance to reflect a little bit and just to remove yourself from the situation a little bit. When you're in a situation, it's it's often it's hard. You're you're very clouded and in, in, in trying to rush to get that story out. And, and often, you know, that's very necessary if you're dealing with, as I said, the Ukraine invasion or when Afghanistan fell or whatever it is. You, you know that that is the job. That is you. You don't have um, the luxury of time. Really, you need to get that story out. But I certainly think it's it's a different story and it's a much more reflective and introspective work that you can do um, when you're taken out of that moment. How do you take notes when you're then then just living in a space and not trying to rush to deadline? Do you uh, because especially I'm thinking especially when one I want to ask you a lot about is Iran. Did you were you comfortable taking notes? Is that something you try to do, or are you like, hey, this could get confiscated? I better keep everything up here in my gray matter because mm. otherwise it might not make it back. Yeah, Iran was a different beast because I I wasn't there, you know, as a working journalist. So I had to be a lot more careful with that. So my notes were really, I mean, taking photographs yeah. and as sort of as memory um, and then, you know, sort of making notes to myself that were fairly arbitrary, I think, um, that were not really written notes, but, you know, I'd keep them in my phone or whatever, but keep it fairly just so I understood it, but it wasn't going to be anything that was going to seem inconspicuous in some way. Um, So that was a really different beast because I I, I didn't actually turn on my phone when I was there until I was ready to leave. So um, I just did not want to sort of take that risk. And yeah, so that was sort of my approach when I was there is was just with sort of extra caution as possible. And, um, and yeah, again, that was a chance to be in the moment too, a lot more, um, without always thinking about what the story is or da da da. It's just allowing yourself to be present and, and, and taking in the experience and, and knowing that you will collate it and figure it together when you're in a, a place that you can do that. And, and when you're inside the country, kind of, um, it's probably not the best place to, to be kind of, uh, <laughs> taking too many notes or drawing too much attention to yourself. So I was, I was very careful about that, but Iran was certainly different to, to most other places that I work. It definitely was. And I want to, I really want to drill into Iran, but before I get to that, because I know we're, we're pressed a little on time. I want to just quickly make sure everyone is tracking the depth and breadth of the subjects that you've been covering just in the last year that I'm aware of. And this is like a wave top level view, but everything from the Southern border with Mexico to Ukraine, to Saudi Arabia, to Iran, to in-depth 
um, stuff about the drug cartels. Uh, I mean, it's such a wide, diverse amount of subject matter. My short, glib question is, why? Are you just an innately curious person? Where did this come from? Because you are on a motorbike that very few other journalists, to my knowledge, match. I don't see anyone else out there hustling the way you are and going after such interesting, nuanced, uh, unique stories because you're not just kind of taking a global view of something. You're really going, hey, what's the cryptocurrency like in Afghanistan? Like That's something that you really got to have some boots on ground knowledge and know a lot about. So where does this come from? What's the engine powering all this? What's your why? Yeah, I definitely think curiosity is a big part of that. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to have, um, I never wanted to be pigeonholed into one thing as a journalist. I didn't want to be that beat reporter that was just going to be covering one particular part of the world or one particular topic or, you know, I always wanted to be, have as much knowledge as I could in different places, but to, to take things that I think are of interest to people. And a big part of what I try to sort of do in, in, with Instagram and other things is ask people what they're interested in learning about. Where, where in the world do they um, do they want to know about or do they have they heard things about that really aren't getting kind of broader coverage? And I'm, you know, I don't work for a mainstream media entity anymore and I'm not trying to be that. I'm trying to be something that's a, a something of a different voice for people that they can come and find stories that you may not necessarily find anywhere else or to understand a situation. I mean, you can hear kind of all these flashing headlines about fentanyl and 120 Americans dying every day from this and not really understand it. I mean, even though it is such a an epidemic, um, a lot of the times, you know, unless you're personally affected by it, and you'd be surprised how much you are personally affected by it and just don't know. But well, what is this thing? I don't understand. And, and and it's very convoluted. And the way it's presented is that it's an opiate overdose. Well, it's not really. It's an opiate poisoning. It's, um, mm. it, you know, it takes like a little grain of salt to kill yeah. someone. So I wouldn't consider that an overdose. But the language has sort of been muffled and very confusing. And so part of what I want to do with all of these stories and all of these places in the world is unravel a little bit of that and make it easy for people to be able to understand and therefore discuss with their friends or their family or their children or whatever it is. Um, and just to kind of have that richer understanding. I'm that's why I got into it. I'm, I'm not here to change policy. I'm not here to, um, I don't have any hubris in changing the world, but I want to be able to bring some of these often uncomfortable issues to light and, and have them um, be able, people just be able to understand them in a way that you may not be able to get from a, a tweet or a kind of a very dry mainstream uh, media headline. And, and that's sort of part of the reason I, I wanted to be out of that world. What I love also is that you really don't seem to have any sacred cows. There seems to be a distinct lack of ideology behind what you do. And I don't say that in a bad way. I mean that in a very good way, that you seem to have a very open mind. One of the recent pieces that you wrote that I was incredibly fascinated in because it's a question that I've been asking myself and no one that I know of has written about it was how QAnon took over the human trafficking beat. And I've been wondering for a while, what's up with human trafficking? Why is this becoming such a big issue? And not that, I mean, we know human trafficking exists. We know it's a, a global issue, but 
the fact that you were able to look to go, yeah, there's a little bit of co-opting going on here. Um, I thought that was incredibly interesting and revealing. Can you just give a brief overview on why that is and what's what's been the appeal? Because I think, as you point out, there are grains of truth to all of it, but that's what makes it complicated and important to split apart where the truth is and where the bullshit is. Mm. And there's so much of that, unfortunately. And and human trafficking really is such a real problem in today's world. And and it happens everywhere, every every state, every city, you know, pretty much every country. Um, it's a huge, huge problem on many different levels. You've got sex tra- trafficking, labor trafficking, um, and it's a huge issue. And somehow this really became um again, a hot button topic um, sort of several years ago where officials were sort of started to be linked to these human trafficking rings, um, things that were really absurd. And I mean, you can uh, not like politicians and most of them I definitely don't like, but to kind of draw these analogies, um, that can be very detrimental. And I, and I do believe that majority of people that will often be sort of sucked into these, it's a very cult-like mentality and that it becomes... Um, a lot of absurdity. And again, there is some sort of nugget of truth that just gets wildly expanded into, into something. You know, I remember years ago, there was a, a big conspiracy driven by QAnon about Wayfair, you know, the yeah. furniture place that yeah. was like trafficking kids. And all of a sudden police are dealing with all these calls and being told they have to investigate this. And that really takes away from the real victims of it um, because these things are, are not accurate. And I, and I do believe that people that get sucked in oftentimes they're not doing it for malicious reasons. They're not, um, they're not trying to, you know, they, they believe that what they're doing is right. They believe what they're being told is right. And they're trying to, to do what they feel strongly about helping without really understanding that um, they're getting very mixed up in a, in a conspiracy theory that is actually hurting the people that they think that they're trying to help. And so I think that that has become this sort of huge uh, proliferation of, of a problem that's happened. And and also something else I, I, I worked on earlier this year with it when it was Super Bowl. And every year when it's Super Bowl, you'll hear all these stories about how human trafficking surges during Super Bowl and this and this. And, this. and if you really dig down on it, it's not actually accurate. Um, and there's no hard data to back that up. It's often just anecdotes or talking points or the county sheriff said this or, you know, and I think that's really important to understand that, um, again, when we convolute events and things to without sort of the proper backing or without the proper knowledge that this is happening, it's it's really hurting the main victims because then in a case like that, it makes it seem like, okay, well, Monday after the Super Bowl, everything's back to normal then. And the people who really win out of that are the predators and the people that are exploiting people because um, these things happen 24-7, 365 days a year, and it's not something to be alarmed about once a year and then just forget about it. I'm going to ask you a very unfair question that you probably can't answer, but I'll throw it out there because if anybody could answer it, I think you're in a pretty good position to. Of all the different problem sets that you've seen firsthand, that you've investigated, what should Americans be most focused on? Or if not one particular problem set, is there kind of a bigger issue that really people need to be more switched on to? Because I feel like you could ring alarm bells about a lot of different things in a very specific way. But what mm-hmm. should people be focused on the most? It's hard to say, and I, I because, again, I 
people come to the table with their own individual things that affect their life. And I, and I think, I think it's so important for all of us to have some sort of passion's not the right word, but a calling to want to do better in a particular area in life and whatever that may be, it might be animals to you. It might be, um, veterans rights it might be you know something in the human rights realm and and whatever speaks to you and I think just there are so many problems but one thing that I'm really sort of focused on right now in just going through different things with my own experience um is healthcare in the United States and again I've Mm. I've traveled everywhere in the world and I come back here and I'm honestly shocked about the way that the system is. And it's not to say we don't have the best um, medical professionals and doctors and things because we do, but they're not the ones that are, um, are sort of benefiting from what I think is incredibly criminal corporate schemes. I think you've got insurance companies and the way that the whole system is structured um, is really abysmal to me. And the fact that you can still be paying hundreds of dollars for coverage each month and not receive the help that you need um, is really mind-blowing. And then, of course, if you're someone who's living in a, in a very impoverished part of the world, I mean, I can, or the country, rather, I can only imagine um, the sort of barriers that are, are being up. And, and I've looked into a, a lot of this and the sort of the scams that insurance companies run, um, they den- how they deny the claims, this sort of process. And it's absolutely criminal to me. And um, being pregnant myself, I'm nearly seven months pregnant, and I've dealt with a lot of different issues. And it was very alarming to me to see that the U.S. has the highest maternal um, mortality rate of any West, you know, any uh, wealthy country in the world. And to me, that is absolutely unacceptable for the United States of America. Um, there should be no reason why anybody is filing for bankruptcy because they got hit by a car. And I see the amount of government waste. I mean, there's a, you can Google it, go to a website and it will list all the bullshit that the government spends money on and, and something to the tune of trillions of dollars are lost every single year by accounting errors. And don't tell me that that money could not be used to help Americans get through each day. Um, And so that is something that is, is appalling to me that it's become such a political hot topic, but nothing is really addressing the matter. Meanwhile, you know, there are many lifestyle factors that come into it. There are many other things that come into it. But I think in that realm, um, we really are, are lagging behind much of the world. That's really interesting. That was not the answer I expected. It makes total sense, but that was, are you going to have more writing coming out about the healthcare system? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wrote a piece um, on my Substack a few weeks ago about insurance companies, but I'm, I'm definitely working on a lot more because again, it's, it's sort of an issue that really affects everybody, you know, whether you are going to try to work through the VA system or you're in private health insurance or you're in Medicare, whatever that may be. Um, it really affects everyone to the point where, it shouldn't be like this. And so it's definitely something that I I feel very strongly about drawing more attention to because in many cases, the behavior is for these for-profit companies is is really criminal. And for some reason, um, they're so tied in with the lobbyists and the DC beltway and everything that kind of exists in that way that, um, that, you know, they get away with behavior that is absolutely unacceptable. And, you know, particularly from, you know, from a point of view as um, an expected mother, it's, I mean, I look at Afghanistan, you know, under the Taliban, and I know I spent a lot of time in hospitals there, and and there isn't no way that you would be treated, you know, like that, 
that some of the things that I've had to experience with, you know, basic care being denied, you wouldn't be treated like that in any other country in the world. And and to me that it's, it's unacceptable that, um, that, that it happens here and how much it affects everybody in, in their day-to-day life and the health of their mental well-being. Um, and I can only imagine that less more is done to kind of draw attention to it. Um, what life will be like for future generations who have to kind of inherit this really flawed system. Reminds me of that Al Pacino line in uh, The Insider when he's playing a journalist and he tells the FBI agent, he says, you're getting me two things. You're getting me pissed off and curious. And I always think that's a pretty good threat for any journalist. If you're getting pissed off and curious, that's a pretty good way of uh, approaching a problem. Yeah, watch out. Um, Okay, without further ado, I got to dive into Iran because that of all the things you've done, that was the one that to me, like gobsmacked me. I was like, wait, what the fuck is she doing now? Um, It's an incredible, can you just give people a, a broad overview of what you did and how you went about doing it, which I thought was fascinating to do it as an Aussie versus an American and kind of some of the mechanics of getting into Mm -hmm. Iran. So I, this was, I did this, this was a little while ago now. It was the summer of 2017. Um, And honestly, to this day, I think of all the things that I've done in my career, whether it's, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Ukraine, whatever it is, Iran, despite it not being a war, was probably definitely the most daunting thing I think I've ever done. And if I I look back on it now and I gosh, I don't think I would do it now. But um, but back then I was, you know, it was gung-ho, ready to go. Um, so I did it and I really, you know, it's always been a place that's fascinating. I mean, who doesn't want to go into Iran? Yeah. It's sort of this big boogeyman, yeah. um, but also a beautiful place at the same time. And and I didn't really honestly think that it was, I didn't really know how possible it was. And then I, I had a friend of mine in Los Angeles, and I remember that he'd sort of told me that he and his wife had gone on a tour thing to Iran. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, it, it kind of must be a doable thing then. And researched that, you know, late one night is due and you're two o'clock in the morning and with insomnia and looking up dumb stuff. Um, and I realized what well, you could I reached out to a tour company that was like, well, we have, you know, different packages and tours. And and I figured, well, if you go through a tour company, like and have them book everything for you, then you can kind of get uh, that sort of an avenue for a way in. And at that point I was, I'd applied for my American citizenship, but I hadn't had my interview yet. So I thought, oh my gosh, this is my last, really my last chance to go because once I have the American passport, it's way more difficult. So the rule is in Iran, if you're Canadian, British or American, you you still can go. It is possible to go, but you have to have like basically 100% supervision. So you basically cannot even leave your hotel without, uh, you know, a, a sort of a certified escort. Whereas in Australian, um, you can pretty much do whatever you want and you don't have to be mind, you know, you don't have someone minding you, you can travel around, you can um, change your itinerary, all sorts of things like that without question. So I thought, well, this is really my last chance to kind of go and I just got to do it now. So I was a little sort of skeptical. I didn't think that um, 
I'd even be granted a visa anyway. I thought, well, it doesn't hurt to try. So I contacted this tour company and they said, well, you can get a visa on arrival, but you have to get a code first. And we apply for the code. And, you know, the tour company's like based in Hong Kong or something, you know, it's all very offshore and funny and weird. And you're like wiring them money. Um, but anyway, so the operator writes me back, you know, a couple of weeks, a week or so later. And she's like, oh, well, good news. Like, you know, you got approved for a code, which I thought was funny because obviously they didn't Google me or they didn't. Yeah. I didn't know. So yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. well, I got the code, so I'm going to go. Um, and I was very, you know, like up and down, you know, and I booked it and I thought I, I can't waste this opportunity. And I booked it. Um, so you, I booked an Emirates flight, I think. So you go through Dubai and then Dubai to Tehran. And oh my gosh, for the like weeks leading up to it, I was so anxious. Um, and I would just sort of lie in bed at night going, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? You know, do I forfeit the deposit? Do I not? Um, and so it was really just like one of these. And I had to, you know, tell myself to just toughen up. And even my boss, you know, I told him I was going to Iran and he's sort of like, well, are you sure you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, you know, putting on a much more brave face than I felt. Um, so anyway, off I go. And I arrived in Tehran. I remember it was a Friday. It was in the summer. It was a Friday. So it blew quiet because Friday is the weekend day, but very much this airport that clearly has not been upgraded since the 1970s um so you know you're sort of there and I remember everybody was getting their visas before me and I'm sort of sitting there in this little back room and and everybody's coming out with their passports and I'm sitting there and the guy's just coming out and asking me questions after questions after questions I'm sort of sitting there thinking my gosh if you're not gonna let me in just send me back to Dubai I don't want don't don't take me anywhere and then so he's sort of coming out and he's like, well, what do you do for a living? And I didn't lie. You know, I said I was a writer. And then he said, well, who do you work for? And I I was working for Fox at the time. But you didn't lie. You told him you were working for Fox. That's yeah, but I, I used the parent company. I used okay. 20th Century Fox. So it can kind of play it a little bit. Um, and then he's asking me about what I write about. And I'm sort of saying entertainment, politics, doo, 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 you know, rattling off a lot of genres. Again, not a lie, because I've written about all those things in my career. And so I can hear all this yelling going on in the back, just sitting there like dying. And then finally he comes out and he waves my passport and he says, here you go. And I just, I remember I ran through the airport because I, I had a, a driver that was there to meet me who I had to give like a whole lot of cash to uh, for the rest of the trip for the tour company. And they really arranged everything. So it made it much easier to plan the hotels and things like that. Um, but yeah, I remember just yeah, running through and just being like, oh my God, I need to, to get out of here before they stop me. Um, so I was there for about three weeks and I, I traveled all over sort of all the different provinces from Ishbahan to Yazd. And I went to like a lot of the historical sites, Persopolis and Shiraz. And it was amazing. Um, I, yeah, I loved it. I, met up with different people along the way, some British girls. And I sort of, the tool company had like a local girl that would kind of um, take me around and I'm sure write like lots of reports mm. and things, but, um, but I was able to kind of see many different sort of facets of it and, and go to different places. And yeah, but I, I do remember just, it was 
it was very daunting the whole time, especially when you're by yourself in a hotel room and you're every night, you're just kind of waiting for something to happen. Um, And this was also a time when a lot of different Westerners were being accused of, and it really takes nothing in Iran. Someone can just go to an authority and say, hey, this foreigner, I think she's a spy with zero proof, with zero anything, and they can arrest you and you can spend the next 10 years of your life in in prison. And that scared me so much more than a terrorist group or anything else um, was sort of that. So, yeah, and I remember when and things, you know, really went without a hitch. I, I had a great time. I met with lots of different people. You know, I met lots of young Iranians. Who, you know, I remember they took me to this party and they said, oh, we're having a party, you know, there's going to be alcohol there. And I get there and I'm thinking it's underground alcohol. And I, in my time that I've lived in Iraq, that I, I remember studying how the alcohol got into Iran and they would sort of, the, these Kurdish men would um, take the bottles up in the mountains on horses. And, and I remember thinking, okay, so maybe this, they got it. But then when I got to this party, I realized that they were drinking rubbing alcohol. So they were mixing rubbing alcohol with um, their soda or whatever, and I just horrified. Um, but that's how desperate wow. these young people were to kind of have a, a fun life. You know, Persians are a fun people, and sure. everywhere you went, everybody would just be like, "Oh my gosh, can you get me a visa to Australia? How do I get out of here?" And and you know, it's, it's it was really sad because there was certainly no there was no hatred to Americans or to Westerners or to any of that. And everybody, particularly the young, you know, they really wanted to engage with you. And and I was a little hesitant to say too much because, again, I don't know who they are. They're right. setting me up to say totally. something. So yeah. I would always just be very, like, mom about everything. But And I felt bad about that because I certainly wanted to be able to empathize and to engage with them a lot more about the predicament that they were in and, and, um, and how many people, whether it's a taxi driver or someone in the hotel desk, how much they um, wanted to, to show you that they, 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 they're not anti-American or anti-West, that it's um, that this sort of very religious leadership doesn't represent who they are. So um, it was really interesting from that point of view. Um, I also have to say for anyone who does go there, be prepared that they take your passport at every hotel you stay and they keep it. So that was always daunting too. So you like, when you check in, you have to hand your passport over and you don't get it returned to you um, until you leave because they're monitoring everything. So finally, when I left, um, I remember I got to the airport and I was just, I was very relieved. As much as I had a great time, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm Time to go, time to get out. I really, yeah, need to go home. And I remember that the the air, um, the seat that I picked on my flight out, it suddenly had changed, and I'm in this like middle seat in the back on this plane. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know why I have this seat, but whatever. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to go. And um, there's a well dressed guy next to me, and he starts, you know, immediately like asking me questions. You know, he's looking over his shoulder at me. On I was sort of scrolling through my photos on my phone, and starts asking me questions about where I went, who I met with, what I did. Um, and I was just sort of playing dumb backpacker, really, just like, oh yeah, you know, I was just hanging out and seeing this, and and I just played it very nonchalant. And he just sort of kept hammering me, and I got really sick of him, so I put my headphones in. And um, kind of ignored him for the rest of the flight. And then when we landed, 
um, we read the back. So everyone else has kind of got off and he got off and he said, oh, well, it was really nice to to meet you, Holly. And I remember I looked at him and I said, you know, Ali, it was so lovely to meet you too. And yeah, I never told you my name. And then I just walked out and his face kind of looked at me and I was like, all right, I think my time. And, and subsequently, since then, I tried to apply for journalist visas, um, but yeah, it was never approved. So uh, it was pretty instinctual and that was probably going to be my maybe first and last chance to get to Iran for at least a very long time. Yeah. Was that the gold standard of threats in your career? I know you weren't working there as a journalist, you know, professionally, but did that kind of set the bar that like no place has ever come close to that? All your travels through Afghanistan, everything, it never equaled the tension of that. Yeah, I mean, I've been detained three times by the Taliban, but even right. that, I never, I always felt very, like, this will get resolved kind of feeling. Um, I think I had a little bit of tension in Syria, just because you're making those illegal crossings, and then I would be getting sort of these prank calls on my phone, and I I was in a very heightened state when I was there. So I think um, the tension in Syria was was pretty palpable, but... But Iran just was just something different. There was just this, again, you're not in a conflict zone. But I'm always a lot more, for me, I'm always a lot more afraid of these governments than I am of actual like terrorist groups of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever it is. And I'm not sure why that is, but I always think that to me that they're way more daunting and scary because they can lock you away for a really long time and, um you know, the conditions are awful and you'll never know what, what could happen. And and there's certainly no fairness in any of their judicial systems. So I think that always, you know, still now scares me much more than, uh, you know, encountering a kind of a bad actor. I know Joan Didion thrived in uh, for many reasons, but one of them was that she was so physically unimposing and so mm-hmm. uh, that people wanted to show off to her and they, and they didn't see her as a threat and they would open up and say things they wouldn't otherwise. And she just always made a point to my knowledge of presenting with very little ego and very, you know, uh, and just there to learn. And it was a great way. It was a great journalistic, um, uh, technique. Is there some of that in you is that in, and, and whether or not intentional, but even just by being a petite female that you can kind of, you don't appear as threatening, especially to a, in a very highly patriarchal society that you can kind mm-hmm. of slip in a little bit and maybe get more information. Yeah, I do think that definitely plays into it. I think that you're oftentimes a little bit of a, a novelty to, yeah. <laughs> to these places because they're a little confused. And especially when they're um, in these very religious societies that are very confused how a uh how a woman, you know, can be kind of operating in these environments or, you know, and working in teams with guys and and she's not married to any of them. And, you know, so that's all very kind of foreign and and strange a little bit to a lot of these people. Um, But I do think it's also a difference between being a writer and a TV journalist. So oftentimes, say, if if a television journalist um, they have a sit-down interview with um, some very ogre figure that, you know, whether it's a Taliban leader or Putin or um, Assad or somebody, 
they feel a pressure to kind of stick it to them a little bit and to kind of play tough. Mm-hmm. And because that's what they, that's what audiences want to see. Um, otherwise you get accused of softball or whatever it may be. Whereas I think being a writer and, and certainly one of the reasons I wanted to be a writer is because you, you don't have the restraint of a camera on you and you can deliver that toughness, but not in this sort of very like, stick it to you way. That is not my job. And I think it's very counterintuitive because how can you expect somebody to open up to you when you're immediately combating against them? Um, then certainly nobody wants to talk to someone who's sitting there trying to start a fight. So I think that um, being able to kind of sit and to really listen, and that's another key thing too that we oftentimes in journalism don't do enough of is the listening part. And so I I think, you know, you develop your own style the more you do it. But for me, it's about um, listening and reflecting on what they say, asking the appropriate follow-up questions, but it's an opportunity to hear their side. I don't want to necessarily go into an interview and completely project my side to you and therefore, you know, what was the point of that? My point of being there and spending time with you is to understand how you think. I may not agree with what you think. I may not like what you think, what what you think might make me really angry, but that is not the time for me to sort of act out. That is the time for me to try to understand. And that's a big part of why conflicts and things happen is because there is such little understanding on every side of the equation. Um, And, you know, that was really hard, you know, throughout, like, I, I think, I, I stayed in Afghanistan after the fall. I think, you know, everybody left. I was like, well, this is the time to stay. I'm not leaving. Of course, everyone says you're crazy. You need to get on a plane. I said, I'm not getting on any plane. I'm staying here. I have my place. I have, you know, I felt comfortable enough um, in my dealings with the Taliban that I was going to be okay to stay. And, you know, at times that was difficult because so much then of the next few months was, you know, every day I'm dealing with the Talibs. Every day I'm sitting with them. Every day, you know, some suicide bomber is inviting me to his house for tea or whatever that may be. And you have to put a lot of your preconceived notions and and what you know and and understand aside to be able to sit there and and recognize that this is an opportunity to learn and let's see it from what they, how they see things. And again, um, it's not about giving people a platform, but it's really being able to understand and, and, and give different sides of hearing and a different perspective. And that's, I think, what um, journalism is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be as opinion-driven as it is today. That makes so much sense. Um, what does occur to me, though, can you talk a little bit about the difficulties of potentially being compromised, though, if you're in that situation where you're like, look, I'm dealing with suicide bombers, Talibs, Saudi government officials, whatever. Um when I do come back and start to write, unless I want to burn all these bridges, I might have to blunt some of the sharp edges here because I want to maintain access. And it, there's almost a de facto compromise that you have to make in order to maintain access, to be able to get to those voices, to say, okay, well, therefore, I can never, not only never editorialize, but I want to be careful to not piss them off in any way that's going to burn bridges or deny my access in the future. Does that ever factor in for you or are you able to divorce yourself from that and just write whatever you want to write? It factors in for a lot of journalists. It it never does. If I piss them off, I piss them off. That's it. Uh, I don't, I don't really care. 
I mean, if that's my one shot to go in and to tell the story, I'm not going to come back and, and sugarcoat it to go back again. If you, and I, trust me, I'm blacklisted from a lot of places. Um, if you want to blacklist me, go ahead. I'm not going to change my story. I will find, you know, I'll have to find a new way to either cover that story or find a new story. I I don't like the idea of journalists wanting stories just so they can continue yeah. to maintain access. Cause I don't think that does a service to the story or to the people that you're trying to write about. Um, of course it sucks because, you know, it's frustrating. You're like, well, fuck this. I want to go back and now you're not letting me. And, yeah. but it's, it is, it's a very challenging part of this kind of work. And I think unless you are, um, I would just say to people, don't get into this sort of work if that's the approach you want to take, where you want to softball things to, you know, keep um, a shitty government happy. That's not the way to do it. I mean, if you can only go to a place once and, you know, and you can come back and tell the truth and keep your integrity and do that, um, you shouldn't be changing things to get a visa. Um, and oftentimes, you know, yes, you piss people off, but, but, you know, surprisingly say with the Talibs, and again, I don't know what my status is with them at the moment. I'm sure they probably don't like me, but I was able to subsequently get visas and things last year and go back um, because the Taliban recognized that I, first of all, they would make jokes that I go after everybody. So they kind of didn't feel like <laughs> I was just going to go after them because, you know, they'd read my work and said, well, you know, you're going after your own government a lot and so-and-so. And so they sort of made a joke of that. But um, for them, it wasn't about trying to do anything that was, um, you know, carrying favor with the Talibs, and they certainly recognized, they were smart enough to recognize that the Western journalists weren't going to come and do that. But it was, they wanted just to make sure that the reporting was accurate. So they they didn't want, so the journalists that were getting blacklisted, it was because according to them, in their mind, it was because that they were, you know, quoting unnamed sources or, um, you know, retelling stories that weren't verified, so maybe just taking, um, what somebody said as fact um, and not really verifying whether that was truth or not. And of course, in these situations, there are a lot of things that are not true that are going on. So I think for them is they wanted to, they wanted journalists coming in and doing accurate work that was fair, that wasn't um, just sort of taking hyperbole or taking someone's anecdote and kind of running with that. So um, they were smart enough to figure that out. I do think sort of over the course of the last six months or so, I think a lot of that initial um, approach that they had is gone. I think that, uh, you know, majority of journalists I know that were living and working there either, you know, pretty much been kicked out. Um, so it is a much harder place to work. But, you know, initially they were a lot more open um, to yeah. to writers and other people being there. But unfortunately, I think that they probably looked at a lot of the coverage and went, well, this isn't helping us in any way, shape or form. So we don't need it. Um, and that is a shame because, yeah, it's sort of slowly eroded. I, I can't resist leaving Afghanistan at that. Did you notice on this last trip back um, how much or how little Chinese presence is there? Is that a growing concern or is that a diminishing concern? Yeah, and I, and I dug into this a lot when I was there. I certainly think, I certainly think that, Again, I'm not sure where things stand right now, but I think that the the sort of concern over China, it's definitely there and it's definitely legitimate. I do think it's been perhaps a little bit overblown. Um, things like Mazinac, the big copper mine in Logar, 
Um, China has had that contract since 2008, um, but they haven't developed it at all. And that's still the case that it hasn't been developed. Um, and they have this lease, I believe, until I think it's 2030. Um, and whether or not China actually feels comfortable enough developing that is still yet to be seen. Um, there's certainly a huge amount of wealth that they could tap into there, but I don't necessarily know that they um, want to play ball with the Taliban as much as we think that they might. Um, I think there is a lot of um, problems in that the Talibs want sort of the, um, they want international partners, they want relations with all these people, but they don't want to be told what to do at all. And so there are certain, you know, contentions that they'll have with any country that might come and want to dictate on certain things or take larger percentage of things. Um, and also an issue with um China too is the Uyghurs. There are there are many Uyghurs that live in Afghanistan and China. I know when I was there, it sort of set a mandate basically saying that, you know, you have to hand over all the Uyghurs and back to us. And Afghanistan basically said they're not, we don't have terrorists on our soil, so no. So there is little contentions like that that I think stand in the way of that relationship. I certainly think, you know, they have relations and that are uh, potential to to become very strong over the years, but I would sort of um, say that it's a little bit, a little bit overblown in in the media, a little bit, um, yeah, exaggerated to just how how tight those ties are right now. So you wouldn't see Afghanistan becoming part of One Belt One Road anytime soon. Uh, I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, you know, if China wants to come and invest in certain things that Afghanistan needs and wants, I certainly think it's possible. But but again, it's sort of, I don't see anything happening immediately. If you look at that border that Afghanistan has with China, and they have a small border, but it's impossible to cross because there's never been any development. Um, so it's this, you know, incredibly mountainous terrain, but there's no roads, no trains, there's nothing. So even when China wants to import and export it, everything goes through Pakistan. So, um, you know, the development hasn't existed 20 years ago and it doesn't exist now. So China obviously, you know, is dragging its feet and has some concerns about um you know, security and other things when it comes to kind of working in Afghanistan. Holly, I want to leave you and thank you for for taking this time. But I want to leave you with one last question that I feel like I'd be negligent if I didn't ask. With all the time you've spent in conflict zones from Syria to Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera, and we've talked about all a bunch of these. Um are there any, I can't think of a better way to put it, are there any anthropological takeaways you can you have or that constantly bubble up in your mind where you're like, there's a couple of things that almost guarantee you will end up, that you will this country will turn into a conflict zone. There are certain ingredients that, and commonalities that you find in all the conflict zones you go to that you're like, yep, that's why this is Syria. That's why this is Iraq. And um, if, if that is, if there is something mm-hmm. that you can articulate, I'm wondering what it is because I feel like in this country, my own personal bias is that a lot of times we forget what real world problems look like. And we sometimes manufacture problems that maybe aren't as big and significant. And I feel like it's important uh, for those of us that spend time in the third world or in conflict zones, if if we've thought about it, to be able to articulate maybe, hey, here's some major components that can speed you down the path to chaos and destruction. If there is anything like that, not trying to 
pimp you into that line of reasoning, but if there mm-hmm. is anything that that crops up for you. I, I definitely think corruption is a huge driver and is really in most cases, the underlying root cause of conflict. I mean, we like to address the the sort of the superficial aspects, the, oh, um, you know, Al-Qaeda came from this or whatever it is. But if you drill down a bit, a lot of these groups are formed out of resentment and anger toward corruption in their own government. So they see... Um, you know, their leaders driving around in a Rolls Royce and have a gold watch and all of these things. And meanwhile, they're struggling to pay, um, you know, to to raise their kids or to, you know, run the farm or every time they try to get to work, they've got to pay a bribe through a checkpoint. And, and eventually this creates an incredible amount of resentment and causes people to come together and rise up. I see that everywhere. Um, I see it in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, any country, you know, you name it, where there, there's so much corruption that causes so much hostility from the people that, um, and it doesn't really get addressed. And I mean, even if you look at the U.S. presence in Afghanistan or in Iraq, the level of corruption was mind blowing. Even with the U.S. there, and that, and I think it was really the biggest failure was turning a blind eye to that, not addressing it, thinking, "Oh, this is just a systemic thing. This is nothing to do with us. We can't fix it." No, you need to make, you need to be hard and fast and create accountability. The U.S. failed to do that, um, and then look what happened at the end in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan didn't fall because the Talibs were this especially strong fighting force. It fell because the own government was a bunch of criminals who were corrupt uh, for the entire duration, stealing our money as taxpayers um, and getting away with it. And in the end, you know, they fled with their money and um, the the military leaders who were also corrupt and stealing money and selling weapons and and doing all these things um, basically to leave their fighting forces without anything. I mean, they Afghanistan had every opportunity in the world to, it had the money, it had the training, it had everything to be able to certainly stand up against um, a much smaller sort of rugged mountain fighting force that the Taliban was, but it failed to do that. And that comes down to corruption. Um, in every country that it exists, you know, if the US is ever going to, to put boots on the ground again, it has to be a sort of a zero policy for that. Otherwise, you you will never win. Um, and so really, countries are their own worst enemy. So um, do you just on that, point, on that point, sorry, on that point, do you think do you think setting a timeline, though, worked against us in fighting corruption when we kept saying, hey, we're going to pull out in like 10 minutes that we kind of sets people up to go, well, shit, if you guys are leaving, I might need to feather my own nest a whole lot more because this ain't going to last. And it kind of doesn't give people. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think timelines give people, yeah, certainly that sense of of feeling like they need to stockpile their funds and and then of course with the you know gives the the uh, quote unquote enemy a chance to kind of just rest its heels for a while and and kind of bide its time. Um, But again, I think at the end of the day, the Talibs didn't win because they were strong. The Talibs win because corruption was just. the stories are mind blowing of how entrenched in every level of society it was, um, what people were able to get away with, and and it, it it makes me angry in the sense that, you know, I see some of the you know Afghans that I know were stealing huge amounts of money and had their Rolex and all of that, and you know now they're living their whatever happy lives in Virginia, and I think to myself like you should be back in Afghanistan and pulling chocolate prison. Like, I wish the, the Taliban would just chuck you in jail because you stole 
so much money and got away with it on every level. And oftentimes, a lot of the Afghans that come to me, and this may sound callous, a lot of the times they come to me and, you know, they're upset. They, how did I get out? How do I get out? And I have to be like, you should have thought of that before you were pocketing money at the embassy or whatever that may be. And this is one thing that we don't talk about. You know, there's a lot of, obviously, empathy with Afghanistan that we um, we talk about and you know, leaving people behind, and there certainly is that. There's a heck of a lot of a corruption. There's a heck of a lot of um, people that were stealing our money and our resources um, and putting other lives in the line as a result of that. And if you look at those evacuation planes, they weren't women and children. They were military-aged men who had every opportunity to fight and stand up to their country, but every one of them chose to run away. You're never going to win. Nobody can fight for you if that is what the resulting outcome is. Um, and so I don't, again, I don't mean there's a lot of amazing, brilliant people who do a lot of incredible work who I feel very unfortunate for um, to have been left there, but there's a heck load of people that got away with doing a whole lot of stuff that you or I, if we were to steal that money, would be in jail right now. So, um, yeah, it, it is incredibly frustrating to me when I sort of look back at that and it didn't need to be that way. I lied. Can I just ask one more question? Yeah. Of Can course. you just compare contrast your time in Afghanistan then with your time in Ukraine, seeing as how close those two events mm-hmm. were and how closely you were there? Did you uh, can you just talk about some of the cultural differences and some of the and especially the way that played out in a kinetic environment that you saw yeah. in both cases? So first of all, I mean, I think Ukraine, their ability to come together, to stand up, to fight, to, um, you know, their country was everything to them. And and no matter what level of position in the government you were or the wealth you had or whatever it is, you found that, you know, AR-15 and and you went out and you joined a a fighting force and and, um, you were ready to, to come together. Same with the women. It was sort of this very collective coming together to to stand up to your country for your country um which you didn't sort of see and again there's cultural differences too but you know you certainly didn't see that in afghanistan and really for weeks before the fall i'm just seeing people run away from bases like where are you going oh we're going home i'm like it it doesn't really work like that um so the, the mentality when it came to just you know being that sort of um, holistic fighting force, that didn't exist in Afghanistan the way that it existed in Ukraine. But funnily enough, I also felt, um, I felt a little more disconnected, I think, from Ukraine than I felt from other conflicts I'd covered. Um, And that's not because I don't have huge admiration for the Ukrainians and what they're going through and what they're going through is awful. But there was a part of me and and that felt, still feels, and that's why I, you know, I went back a few times but didn't have the same sort of drive was because, you know, there was a part of me that actually felt a little bit guilty, I think, too, about the amount of attention that Ukraine had gotten let me start down now, but, you know, and especially for that initial six months and it was just so go, go, go. Um, And, you know, every news crew, this and this, and it was just sort of 20 wall-to-wall coverage. And there was a part of me that felt a little bit guilty about that because there were so many parts of the world that were suffering 
just as much, if not a lot more, that we just we never hear about, that don't get any coverage, they don't get any sort of um, support, nobody's rallying around them, nobody's starting a GoFundMe page to support them. And I felt you felt that Ukraine, um, and for strategic reasons, obviously, mm-hmm. that, it, you know, it's much more important to the US than sure. the DRC or wherever it may be. Right. But, you know, there's a part of me that sort of felt like I, you know, and being there and telling stories, which, you know, I, I, again, important to tell, but and was I contributing to um, the kind of mass? And and again, I didn't I didn't want other places to sort of be forgotten. And a lot of places were forgotten in that sort of mad rush. And again, I think this is where, you know, my philosophy, I think, as a journalist, isn't to follow the breaking news or to... Um, to do the story, everything else, everyone else was doing, but to find the, the things that people aren't talking about. So I value my Ukraine experiences. I, you know, I spent a good sort of um, time in Bakhmut last year and it was very intense. And I value those experiences and what it taught me and what I was hope, you know, hope that I can bring to the table as a journalist. But I also felt that um there were so many people covering those places that I don't know how much that I could have really contributed. Um, whereas if I was somewhere else or writing about a different topic, it may have, you know, a different impact. Um, and and there was, yeah, I think there was just, there was a guilt that I, I had um, just because Ukraine received the amount of attention it did when, um, you know, you look at, say, again, the DRC where 20 women are being raped in a minute and babies are being raped and and all these horrific things that we don't want to talk about or discuss. Um, and so I, I felt, strongly that there were other parts of the world that also needed some sort of light as well so yeah I think that as much as I admire the Ukrainians yeah there was just that I think it, it it's it's been well covered by by other people and I also felt um I felt very angry especially in the initial phases of the amount of exploitation that was happening there too in the sense that there were all these sorts of GoFundMe pages and all these idiots that were like, you know, making tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for people to support them to go and fight when you had no fighting experience, you had no business being there. There were these sort of fake NGOs that were there, again, raising all this money basically to sort of pocket themselves. You had this whole social media warrior. I remember seeing there was a, I think it was an aid worker or something in the hotel who literally put his body armor on to go outside to take a selfie and then came back in to take it off. I'm like, what am I living in here? Like, this is like a dog and pony show. And because Afghanistan, compared to Afghanistan, we actually had to have a visa and it wasn't really easy to, to be there. Yeah, Ukraine was a free for all, you know, pretty much anyone could come across those borders. Um, and so you did, you had the wrath. And I hated the fact that Americans and other people who generally wanted to help were being exploited. Essentially their money was, they thought that they were doing the right thing in, in donating to the GoFundMe, but they realized they're just really donating to someone's Instagram page and their ego and their um, their own pocket. And so I saw a lot of that, and it it really made me like angry to a point that I'd never been that angry in my life. That seems like a story worth telling, regardless. That's that's yeah. uh, I mean that it's an interesting comment on war fighting and righteous causes nowadays and how that yeah the second and third order effects of those um what's next for you <sighs> a, I, I, I know I you've got yes. you've got a baby yeah. that's a bit that's a big next no, it's phase. A big yeah. reflection. no it's really a big reflection time for me because um 
Yeah, it's been, uh, I guess, really for this year, it's been a lot more of a struggle to be an independent journalist. Um, and I've had to really think about whether I'm able to do this or not. Now that I have a family to think about um, what I want my life to be, and it's not that I don't love this work because I, I love it. It's absolutely my, like, calling and passion. I've been doing it since I was 19 years old. Like, I just, it's all I've ever done. And yeah, again, I'm sort of in the middle of trying to understand whether I can actually do this because independent journalism isn't easy and I don't want to go work for some corporation and become some. And if honestly, if I worked for some corporation, you'd be sitting at a desk <laughs> in a cubicle. I mean, companies are not paying um, foreign correspondents to go to countries and spend weeks embedded with this and that and uh, the way that it used to be. That just, it, unfortunately, with AI, with social media, with other things, it's just everything is a factory now. And I don't want to be part of that. Um, and that was the reason I left Fox because I didn't want to be part of that. But I I don't know how sustainable it is long term. So, yeah, I, I, I wish I could answer your question, but I really haven't figured it out myself what the next chapter of my life is. And again, I'll always write. I love writing and, and you know, I have my sub stack and that'll always be a part of, you know, what I do. Um, I just don't know if it can be solely what I do. So yeah, I'm not sure what the next chapter is, but in any case, for me, it's always about bringing awareness to something. And um, I think there are a lot of issues that I want to be able to bring awareness to. And um, I'd love to be able to write and to do those things, but um, I have to really, yeah, take some time to think about where, uh, what skills I can use and where. And it's not always easy. It's a, some of the life change you, you know, I'm yeah. 37 now and now I'm trying to figure out, you know, what can I do next? Yeah. Uh, that Do you have a backlog of stories that you haven't been able to get to? even if they're smaller or human interest or creative nonfiction stories, I imagine you have a catalog of things. Oh yeah. So many. Yeah. I have so many. And I have a, you know, another book that I'm working on and another book that I want to be working on. So they're all, all the ideas are all there. It's just figuring out yeah. sort of um, how they can be executed, I guess. Holly, give everybody the link to your Substack because it is w one of, if not the most fascinating Substack. Um, that I know of, um, and of course, except for my own Substack. But besides that, no, it is. Yeah. It's a phenomenal Substack, and I, I enjoy you. it so much. And but just let everybody know how they need to stay on top of what you're up to, um, where they can buy your books because you've got your Afghanistan book that's coming out. Yeah, soon, that's right? already out. That. So that's okay. a that's a uh, photography book. So that's with right. my photographer Jake. So that's more of a collector's item. Um, and then um, you can go to my website, which has all my books listed and and articles and sort of things like that. Um, which is Holly, my name H O L L I E M C K A Y dot com. And then my Substack is Holly S. So H O L L I E S M C K A Y uh, at Substack dot com. Hollyspk.substack.com. Does that sound right? Did I get yeah. that right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I know. The link is on my website. So Holly <laughs> and also my Instagram handle is is at Holly S. McKay as well. So yeah, please follow. And um again, I, I love to share stories, but I also love to hear about what stories people want covered and what they want to learn about too, because that can um I think that's important to to know what your your audience wants and and 
um, as well as bringing things that they may never have thought about. So it's a it's a twofold game. Yeah, well, it's been a, it as I say, it's an absolute pleasure to read your work, and um, I want to talk again more and at length, and when you have time, because there's so much that I would love to dive into further. But in the meantime, um, we love your writing. And I'm thrilled that you're. Uh, thanks for yeah, coming. Yeah, anytime. I'd this. love to chat. If there's an article that piques your interest that you want to dive into, please reach out anytime. I'd love to to go I through will, it. I will definitely take you up on that, Holly. Thanks. Thanks a million. Thank you so much for having me. That was Holly McKay's profile in Havoc. Her second profile in Havoc, and hopefully second of many more to come. I really I can't wait to get her back on the show. And I think she's right. We will dive into kind of one subject each time because I think there's there's she writes about too much to talk about all at once. I think I think it'll be much wiser to dive into one issue at the time at a time. Um and seriously, like no bullshit. In between reading Havoc Journal and uh, you know, checking out everything at Second Mission Foundation. We'll talk about vet rep here in a second, but no shit. Subscribe to Holly's Substack. It is a fascinating Substack. Um, the subjects, the specificity. Um, I'll, I'll just read you uh, just right now. I'll just read you headlines. Can I do this? I'll just read you headlines from her latest Substacks. Um, let me see. Uh, she has inside Saudi Arabia which was uh, part of her video diary series. Um, has the VA denied a medical claim issued to a lower rating than you deserve, or are you battling to have your case seen or heard? Um, Darfur and the genocide that never ended. Inside Yemen, a video series. Reflections of war on Anzac Day. Um, how to survive the Aussie outback when everything is out to kill you. Um and uh, why the cartels don't care about killing clients with fentanyl. I mean, that's just, uh, what is this? This is like, this is like uh, I don't know, whatever that is, seven? Yeah, that was like two weeks of stories. That's it. Just, just like two weeks of headlines. Um, just so many different subjects. She's almost like a one-woman Vice magazine, the way Vice magazine used to be. Or Coffee or Die, for that matter which Holly has written for, by the way. But she's almost like a one-woman show, though, with that. It's truly an incredible, impressive amount of content. So I really couldn't recommend it more highly. So go out, read Havoc Journal, subscribe to Holly McKay. Those two, Between those two publications in your inbox every day, uh, you will be amply covered on fascinating subjects and amazing grist for your gray matter. That sounds like a bumper sticker. Okay. Um, but thank you to Holly for coming back on and we can't, we can't wait for the next time. Okay. We started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, second mission foundation. I now want to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, veterans repertory theater. Yes. Veterans repertory theater is my nonprofit, uh, which means I really should know all of this by heart and I don't. So let me stall for a second and punch up my very excruciatingly well-written description of what Veterans Repertory Theater is for those of you 
who do not already know. So Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax-exempt, nonprofit, 501c3 organization which provides a platform for veterans, military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employees, and contractors, and their immediate family members, that's how we define veterans, to create compelling live theater and events. That's it. That's what VetRep does. If you want to know more about VetRep, we are doing so much stuff over there. Um, I won't bore you with all of it right now, but go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. And when you're there, what I would recommend you do is subscribe to our mailing list, which also doubles as our literary blog. What that means is every day, in addition to getting your email from Havoc Journal because you've subscribed to them, and your Substack from Holly McKay, you will also get a little snippet of veteran writing, usually fiction, poetry, or creative nonfiction, in your inbox every single day, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs of all the different things that we are doing at VetRep. So when you're on the homepage of VetRep.org, scroll down a little bit, you'll see the button to subscribe for free to the literary blog. And go ahead and do that, and then you will be in the loop on everything we have going on. Everything we do is live performance-based, it is badass stuff. You will want to see it um, as often as you're able to. So go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And thank you, VetRep, for helping to sponsor this episode. Okay, I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal. And I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, thanks for joining us. And we will see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. 